You're listening to The Raven and The Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 83. Hello again, Metamorphs. Welcome to another edition of The Raven and The Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So, let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part three of my Metamorph City novella, Divide by Zero. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 81 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Hallie Carmenos is a brilliant young theoretical physicist who has just completed her doctorate at the University of Pyralis. Last week, she presented the defense of her dissertation in a large public talk that was highly publicized around campus. The reason for this unusual step was the extraordinary nature of Halley's research. She's developed a new model for the way space-time interacts with the ether, the realm of magic, and if her calculations are correct, then seeing the future is physically and magically impossible. After the talk, Halley encountered a stranger who had watched her presentation with great interest. The man complimented her research, but he also said that the model doesn't work in its current form. His reason for this conclusion? Because griffins can't fly upside down. Though the man's answer seemed like nonsense, Halley was vexed enough to investigate the matter, only to find that the stranger was correct. The model incorrectly predicted the magic fields that griffins use in order to fly. Halley was baffled at how the man could have seen this, and she posted an anonymous ad in the local papers, asking to meet with him so she could know more. The stranger responded, and Halley met him in a virtual cafe on the WorldNet. An apparent malfunction in the cafe's VR interface caused a strange sort of feedback when she shook the man's hand. He introduced himself as Septimus Octaginta, another riddle, based on a game played by mathematicians centuries ago. It means that his true name is seven letters long, and the numerical values of the letters add up to eighty. Septimus agrees to help Hallie by taking a closer look at her model. They will meet tomorrow at her office on campus, so they can go over her research in greater detail. But before he leaves, Septimus has an urgent question for Hallie. What size are her pants? She tells him, but when she asks why, he answers with another riddle. Watch out for puddles. As annoying as his games are, though, Hallie is determined to learn all she can from the man whoever he is. Divide by Zero A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 3 Wednesday, June 16th I woke up feeling refreshed, energized, and glad to be alive. I couldn't remember the last time I'd slept so well. I pulled open all the shutters and blinds in the apartment, filling the rooms with warm, golden sunlight, then sang to myself in the shower. As I came back out into my room, the towel wrapped around me, I paused in front of my full-length mirror. 
It had been a long time since I had really looked at myself with anything but a clinical eye. I let the towel fall to the floor and decided that had been an oversight. I raised my arms and turned this way and that, thoughtfully admiring how the beams of sunlight fell across my lean frame, running my fingers through my glossy black curls. I ran my hands down the length of my body and smiled, feeling an odd but welcome flush of pleasure and pride. Sophie was right. It was a shame to hide this under layers of heavy fabric. Maybe now that I'd jumped through all the hoops to get my doctorate, I could afford to enjoy myself a little. Still smiling, I picked up my towel and went to get dressed. In keeping with my sunny mood, I went with a pale yellow camisole, coupled with my usual jeans and sneakers. The business suit only comes out when I have someone to impress. Graduate students can't afford many dry-cleaning bills. The sleeveless garment showed off my rich brown skin, and it would also help to keep me cooler in the summer heat. The front of the cami was cut low. It would have shown some cleavage if I'd had any to speak of. It was more revealing than what I'd usually wear to the office, but today was a good day, and I was feeling a little adventurous. Sophie hadn't come home the night before. Not all that unusual, but it did mean that I'd have to catch the bus up to campus, since she was the one with the skimmer. No matter. The sun was shining, last night's rain had taken the edge off the heat, and I would thoroughly enjoy the three-block walk down to the bus stop. Our flat was in the city proper, about a kilometer off of a strip of small shops and second-story apartments that formed a sort of downtown for the surrounding neighborhoods. Morning rush hour had come and gone, but tourists were thick on the ground this time of year, and the streets were full of skimmers, ground cars, and people, as I walked down to the bus stop. I looked out at the teeming crowds, the uni students on break and the lovers on holiday, men walking their dogs and women pushing their children in strollers, and it all seemed inexpressibly wonderful. I smiled at people as they passed, and walked with my head held high, a little too high, as it happened. As I neared the bus stop, a passing ground car struck a nearby puddle and sent a spray of mud all over my jeans. I stood there, frozen in shock that turned quickly to rage as the man drove off without even an apology. My positive attitude evaporated like morning mist. What the hell? I exclaimed, to no one in particular. I looked down at my mud-soaked pants and cursed again under my breath. They weren't even remotely salvageable. There was no way I could go into the office like this. Damn it, I was going to miss my appointment with Septimus. Dr. Kamenos! I looked up sharply and was surprised to see that the bus had pulled up to the stop. Right above me, peering out of one of the last two windows on the bus, was Septimus. I stared at him for a moment, stupidly. Are you coming? he asked, gesturing toward the doors at the front of the bus. I... I stopped, then gestured helplessly down at my pants. I have to go home and change. The bus chimed a warning that it was about to depart. No time, he called. Reaching down beside him, he hefted a bag from one of the small downtown garment shops and waved it in front of me. Get on, quickly! I was already moving before I could even think of saying no. I caught the door just before it closed, and my legs made their way to the back of the bus without any conscious direction on my part. 
Septimus had saved a seat for me alongside his own. He was wearing green again, but he'd replaced the suit with a short-sleeved buttoned shirt and jeans, which made him look like any of a thousand other tourists. Well, okay, like a particularly charming and good-looking tourist. His eyes danced as he saw me come up and sit down beside him. I told you to watch out for puddles, he said, passing the shopping bag over to me. I looked inside and found a pair of jeans, size eleven tall, and a cute pair of ruby-red sandals. I turned to face him, my jaw hanging open again, and he winked and smiled. How did you know? I asked, unable to say much of anything else. He shrugged. There are two answers to that question. The acceptable answer and the other answer. The acceptable answer might say that I knew last night's forecast called for heavy rains, followed by clear skies this morning. It would go on to assume that I knew your friend Sophie's proclivities, and that you would likely be forced to take the bus this morning to make our ten o'clock appointment. I knew where the bus stop was, and that the heavy traffic of the tourist season would make it likely that whatever pants you wore upon leaving the apartment would be soiled by the time you reached the university. I laughed. That's the acceptable answer? It makes you sound like a stalker. He waggled his eyebrows. Oh, just brilliantly insightful and generally well-informed. Or that, I agreed, laughing again. I could feel my cheery mood of this morning slowly making its way back to me. So what's the other answer? He gave me a look of mock surprise. Why, that I saw it all in a vision, of course. But we both know that's impossible. I snorted and shook my head. All right, fine. However you did it, thank you. I've been looking forward to our meeting, and I'd hate to have missed it because of a puddle. I can't wait to get started. You already have he said. Upon our arrival at the university, I changed clothes, stuck the dirty ones in a plastic garbage bag, then led Septimus up to the tiny office that I shared with two other grad students. Neither of them were there at the moment. Classes were out, and most students were at the beach or home visiting their families, so I stole one of their chairs and sat down alongside Septimus as we powered up the computer terminal. He found a hard-copy printout of my dissertation on my desk and began leafing through it, occasionally murmuring something under his breath. "'Would it trouble you if I write on this?' he asked after a moment, looking up. I leaned over and peered at the cover. "'No, go ahead. That's just a proofreading copy. I've already submitted the official ones to the college for binding.' He was already busily jotting notes in the margins." Given what you discovered about Griffins, he said absently, you might want to ask to submit an addendum. It's not the dissertation that worries me, I said, bringing up the mathematics program I'd used to build my model. Those are allowed to be imperfect. The real trouble is the paper we're writing for monology. Can you imagine if it were published with flaws like the one you found, after the way I talked up the implications? We'd be a laughingstock in the community. He gave me an unexpectedly sharp look. What is more important to you, your reputation or the pursuit of truth? I must warn you, I have been in the truth-seeking business for a long time, and it has done nothing to improve my reputation. I shifted uncomfortably, feeling a blush settle into my cheeks. Well, of course I want to follow the evidence where it takes us. I don't want to have a good-looking paper just to have a good-looking paper. I want to know how things work. 
He nodded. And are you willing to risk your reputation for this? Are you willing to ask impertinent questions and accept uncomfortable answers? I nodded, feeling a little more confident now. If that's where the evidence leads us, then yes. His eyes grew distant, staring off into some point in space behind me. So you are, he murmured. Then suddenly he was back, smiling that handsome smile and engaging me with those startling eyes. Very good. Let's begin by examining the theoretical underpinnings of your model. The process took hours. Beginning with the overview I had given in my talk, I now showed Septimus all of the ugly details of developing the model that went unseen by the general audience. He rarely spoke except to ask questions, seeking clarification on some minor point, or asking me to explain the rationale behind this or that assumption that I had used in the model. He absorbed everything with remarkable speed, and in many cases he saw where I was going well before I got there. The complex mathematics that caused many scientists' heads to spin were absolutely no hindrance to him. You haven't said much, I noted, as the clock approached five in the afternoon. I'd finally said all that I could think to say about the model, and he had run out of questions. You must have seen flaws in what I told you, because they're obviously there. How come you haven't pointed them out to me? He stroked his beard for a moment, thoughtfully, then raised his hand between us as if he were holding something. I see the flaws in the results, he said after a moment. I see the ways in which this or that prediction fails to conform to what I know to be true of reality. But those flaws are not the problem. I see the logic that leads you to those flawed conclusions, and the logic is not the problem either. What I have been doing here today is following the lines of logic from those flawed conclusions back to the flawed thinking that created them. He leaned forward and closed his hand into a fist, looking at me seriously. You see the world through a certain lens, one that is shaped by your upbringing. Although quantum mechanics decrees that the universe is intrinsically disordered and unpredictable, you have never truly accepted that. Indeed, the whole of your career could be viewed as an attempt to divorce uncertainty from existence. You assume that the universe is mechanical, that time is linear, that cause follows effect, that reality is deterministic. Everything is explicable and rational, given time and patience. Truth is nothing more than the systematic interpretation of facts. If you could catalogue every variable, account for every component of a system, everything could be predicted and explained. Randomness is an illusion caused by ignorance of some or all of the forces in play. Does all of that sound right? I nodded, frowning slightly. He leaned closer, now holding up both of his fists in front of him. That is the lens you live with, he said, softly but fervently. His eyes drew me in and held my gaze like a vice. The lens that focuses you and focuses your perceptions of the world around you. It is the lens of absolute order. But like any lens, it is limited. And as your model has shown you, it is flawed. He spread his hands, open-palmed, on either side of my face, blocking my view of anything but the eyes that were right in front of me. You want to know the truth, but you are wearing blinders. 
Before you can find knowledge, you must first learn how to see. With that, he put his hands over my eyes, the fingertips touching my eyelids. There was a sudden surge of power, an electric, tingling sensation that drove me back in my chair and made stars dance in front of my eyes. I felt no pain, but it seemed as if all of my senses had been suddenly amplified. Air currents danced along my skin. Sweat made rivers of ice down my back, and I could smell the must and leather of old books on the shelf across the room. I could also smell him, the scent of masculinity, damped down to civilized levels through hygiene and deodorant, but now strong and heady around me. Even worse, I could smell my own arousal, as my body began to respond to the nearness of his presence, the memory of his touch. I looked at him in astonishment, remembering the first time I had touched him in virtual. That hadn't been a faulty programming module. That was him. What did you do to me? I asked, my voice sounding small and timid in my ears. He rose to his feet. I have but planted a seed, a small potentiality that will grow or wither as you see fit. Or perhaps I have done nothing but water the seed that lay dormant inside you. Regardless, a choice is before you now. I will teach you what I know, if you will allow yourself to see it. If you allow this seed to grow, it will grow up through the very center of your beautiful orderly lens until its flaws become chasms before your eyes. It will shatter your illusions until it is quite impossible for you to see the world as you do now. Such is the cost of knowledge. He bowed to me. Consider whether you are willing to pay it, for I shall expect your answer when next we meet. He turned to go. What? I started, but the words fell away into an empty rush of air. I closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and tried again. When will that be? He paused, his hand on the doorknob. That is entirely up to you. Sleep on it. Think about it. Then call me when you are ready. He left. I sat there for a long time in silence, staring at nothing listening to the echoes of his footsteps, breathing in the memory of his scent. I lay awake for hours that night, thinking hard. The heightened perceptions of earlier had gradually faded, but I felt like there was something there that hadn't been there before, or maybe something that had been there that I'd never learned to notice. I almost felt that if I tried... I could reach inside my mind and touch the thing that waited there, could unfold it and use it to do something. Get back the intense sensory input I had experienced earlier, perhaps, but on some level I knew it was more than that. I wouldn't know exactly what it was until I tried to use it, though, and that frightened me. I felt like a child sitting alone in a dark room, with an electric torch in her hands, afraid to turn it on because she can feel something moving around out there, unable to move, unable to see, and afraid to use the power in her hands for fear that it would reveal something more terrible than the darkness. The room might not be the beautiful place she had always assumed it was, with colorful wallpaper and toys stacked in neat rows for her to play with. 
It might, in fact, be a cave, and the things she heard moving out there might be monsters waiting to eat her. Septimus had told me that my neat, orderly view of the universe was wrong, or he had strongly implied it in any case. He'd named the core axioms of my life and dismissed them as illusions. What could that mean? Obviously rational thinking was valuable. Look at the advances that society had made in the last thousand years because of rational inquiry. Science, especially the scientific study of magic and physics, had given us cities that touched the sky, ships and cars that flew, trains that rode on air, medicine that doubled the human lifespan. Clearly our ideas weren't entirely wrong. But maybe, maybe they were incomplete. Valuable, yes, but only for limited applications, like the laws of mechanics, like my model. If that were so, then what was under the surface? Could I bear finding out? if the truth was as shattering as Septimus implied? I turned over and looked up at the ceiling. A better question. Could I bear it if I never found out? The thought came back to me again. Intellectual cowardice is unbecoming in a scientist. Once it had been a tool that allowed me to cut away any constructs of faith or superstition that might get in the way of my work, it was the slogan that had sustained me when I discovered that prophecy was impossible and the beliefs that had shaped our world were an illusion. It was my rallying cry in the face of opposition from the philosophers and seers and true believers who held firmly to the belief that the future was revealed in divine revelations and the ramblings of prophets. Now it was calling me to take a step of faith myself, to open myself up to something I didn't understand, something that, according to the man who did understand it, would cost me dearly. It was calling me to turn on the light and face whatever it was that awaited me. I am not a coward, I told the ceiling. I closed my eyes, reached out, and touched the thing that waited inside of me. And slowly... Hesitantly, I opened it. And that's the end of part three. What does Hallie find when she opens Septimus's gift? Find out when Divide by Zero continues. This is my last episode for 2016. I'll be taking a couple of weeks off for Christmas and New Year's, and then return in early January with the last two parts of Divide by Zero. So for one last time this year, let's check in on my latest storytelling efforts. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 6,186 words this week, over the course of 7.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 825 words per hour. As of Saturday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 33 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working steadily on my Artax-centered Christmas story, A Wizard Family Solstice. I had to throw out about 900 of the words I had written on Thursday, because the characters had gotten stuck in a way that wasn't fitting the tone I had in mind. 
So I backed up, had one character make a different choice, and that led to a chain reaction of other choices that brought the story to a much better place. I ended up writing more than 2,000 words on Friday night, so the decision really paid off. Throwing out scenes like this isn't something that I do very often, but this experience was a good reminder for me that sometimes it's exactly the right thing to do. And now, the feedback. Corinthia Hannah wrote in about the story Missing Pieces, which is found in the Divine Intervention story collection. She writes, I've been working my way through the Metamore City stories over the past month, and I just finished Missing Pieces. Joe's story brought me to tears, and I wanted to thank you for sharing it. As a trans woman, it's rare to find stories that can convey that need to be whole. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Corey. Special thanks for this episode goes to Addie Reed, who checked over the rough draft to make sure that it felt true to life. I really appreciate Addie taking the time to help me tell Joe's story right. Thanks for writing in. After part one of Divide by Zero, several folks chimed in on the fans of Metamore City Facebook group with their thoughts about the story. Daniel Stoker raised a good question. He said, When she declared science and magic can't divine into the future, my first thought was, well, what about psionics, as I don't know quite how that fits in the physics of your universe, unquote. Good question, Daniel. Psionics is a little spooky and hard to explain, even within the confines of the Metamore universe. There does seem to be a link of some kind between psi powers and the ether. This is supported by the fact that exposure to large sources of life-aspected mana can give people psionic powers. But while magic depends on calling forth and storing mana that comes from outside the person's body, psionics depends on something that is inside the person. Since psi is specifically associated with life-aspected mana, it may be that psis have a direct connection to the noumen, the divine essence of life and creation in the Metamore universe. But since the size have never let themselves be studied by anyone outside the collective, we may never know for sure. If Halley's equations are right, though, and there is some sort of limitation on setting information backwards in time, that would apply to all forms of divination, magical or psionic. There's more to this thread, so if you're interested, go to the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group and check it out. It's a great way to connect with your fellow metamorphs. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, you can make a monthly pledge to support it at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The generous support of fans like you is what makes this show possible. That's all for this week. Have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year, and I'll see you in 2017. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2006 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.